Well, I think all of the men who were at the retreat would say it was a great time, great teaching and great fellowship, and uh, a sample of great things to come. Our uh, lesson is Lesson 36. We are drawing very near, as you know, to the end of our study of the uh, Gospel of Mark. And uh, I put a picture on the board for you. I took this crummy picture. (laughs) But, you know, the expression, that's the last straw, or uh, parents of children uh, probably know exactly what that means. And that is, somebody draws the short straw, right? And you know why I put four straws, do you not? There are four Gospels. (laughs) And the short straw in some people's minds would be the Gospel of Mark. Because, yeah, let's go to the next slide. As you look at at this graph, by the way, I am learning, folks, and I'm not doing too well at it. But as you look at that graph, uh, Matthew has 32 uh, uh, verses. Mark has uh, 21. Luke has 26. And John has 30. So Mark is on the short end of the stick. It's the short straw, as it were, when it comes to the uh, the gospel accounts of the trial of our Lord Jesus uh, before Pilate. But the question is, does that mean it's a second-class account? Are we really drawing the short straw, so to speak? Have I gotten the short straw in terms of uh, my uh, text Should I prefer in my mind to go to something lengthier and more detailed? I don't think so. I'll I'll try to defend that as time goes on. But as you look at the other Gospels, what you will discover is that they supply us with a great deal of additional information. And information that's helpful to us, I believe, in our study of our text in the Gospel of Mark. For example, with Matthew... You have those first five verses of our text cut in half, and in between those, you have this, uh, these verses, uh, three through ten of Matthew 27, which records the remorse of Judas. And he says, in a sense, I have betrayed innocent blood. Remember? That's found in Matthew's account alone. It's also in Matthew that we read that Pilate's wife has a a dream and a fitful night. And she says to Pilate, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Uh, Only in Matthew. And perhaps the most chilling statement of all is there in verse 25 of Matthew 27. His blood be upon us and upon our children. Is that not just a terrifying verse to read? Luke. Uh, you have the uh, account of Herod uh, uh, patched into that. The other Gospels don't take us there. But you remember, Pilate is probably looking for a back door to this case. And, and when he hears that Jesus is a Galilean, he says, Aha! That's my solution. Sends him off to Herod, whose turf uh, Galilee was. And uh, you know that uh, Jesus does not speak Uh, anything in defense to Herod, although Herod was eager to see Jesus because he hoped to see a sign, he didn't get one. And in the end, Herod mocks the Lord Jesus, sends him back, and those guys become great buddies from that time on. I call it the Fellowship of Fools. And uh, you can see that, I think, as you read in the text. John has the most detail... Uh, that is additional to our account, and I'll just I'll, I'll just whiz through that so that you uh, keep it in mind because I think it is important as we read and study our text. The Jews refuse to enter into the house or the inner courtyard of 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 a Pilate, and and you can imagine I'll mention this later, but you can imagine the offense in a sense when you want Pilate to hear your case, but you're not going into his house because you'll be defiled there. Well, that's a great way to start out a a case uh, with a judge, but that's what we're told. And it's also in that same verse that we see this time crunch 
that in their minds the Passover is yet to be uh, eaten, and therefore they are worried about their ceremonial cleanliness, and that's why they will not go into the praetorium. And then you've got that that insult uh, of the vague accusation that they make, where he says to them, in effect, what's the charge? Well, Pilate, if we didn't have a valid charge, we wouldn't be here. Can you imagine a judge hearing that from a prosecutor? <laughs> well, judge, just trust me. This guy's a bad dude. Don't bother yourself about the details. Just trust me. I'm sure he's bad. And then they say, the Jewish leaders say, we can't put Jesus to death. That has to be done by Rome. And, of course, that has to do with the way in which our Lord Jesus is di- dies. And then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my disciples, if it were, my disciples would fight. That I find to be a fascinating statement. Not only because Jesus is saying to Pilate, I'm not a threat to you, but, but also his saying, if my kingdom were of this world, uh, then my disciples would fight. Can't you just see them itching to say, but they did. They did. What are you going to do? Show Malchus's ear as evidence? There's, there isn't any. You just got to swallow that line of argument. And I guess you would say, because Jesus rebuked Peter and had his disciples put down their weapons, then that's confirms our Lord is not seeking revolution as they would love for him to believe. Jesus says to Pilate, I've come to testify to the truth. And you have that cynical statement. By the way, I thought of a new title. I'm not sure whether I'll use it or not. How to shock a cynic. I mean, here's a guy who in a sense has seen it all and heard it all from his mind, uh, from his point of view. And so he's saying, you know, what is truth? You know, it's like, you know, I've heard it all. Give me a break. And, and uh, he, he says to Jesus, what is truth? And then you have in John's account the threefold statement, I find no guilt in him. Three times. He's innocent. The leaders then say, Jesus should die by our law. He's a violator of our law for blasphemy. But he made himself to be the son of God. That's when Pilate really starts to itch. And he says to Jesus, uh, where was it you came from again? <laughs> now, the thing I see about this is, as this trial goes on, it's clear that Pilate is more and more convinced that Jesus is innocent and that these charges are trumped up. The further he goes in this thing, the worse it gets. And in that sense, the more compelling the evidence is, he ought to dismiss the case. But he doesn't do that, as we all know. And then Pilate, amazed at Jesus' silence, says, Don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know the authority that I have to deal with you? Jesus says, Man, i got to tell you, the only authority you have comes from above. That's pretty pretty frightening, I think, for Pilate. And so then the Jews make that statement in uh, chapter 19 and verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. Do you understand the implications of that? What they're saying? We surrender all of our messianic hopes and expectations. And our Savior, as it is, is now Caesar. Wow, that is really powerful stuff, all from the Gospel of John. So the question becomes, does Mark's brevity in leaving out all of those particulars, does it somehow make his account second class? And I would say, number one, when we read the Gospels, it is expected, any one of the Gospels, it is expected that we will read the others. And therefore, just because Mark doesn't have it, doesn't mean we don't have it. It's in the Bible. And therefore, all of this evidence comes to bear if we are students of all of the scriptures and not just selective about one book or another. 
Mark is not always the short account. I've been saying that all the way through the gospel. There are times when Mark's account is lengthier and more detailed. And in this text, we have a detail that all of the others leave out. And that is Simon, no, not, not the fact that Simon of Cyrene takes the cross. Simon of Cyrene has two sons named Rufus and Alexander. Isn't that interesting? Well, we'll come back to that. So he gives us details even in this account, this short account that I think are significant. Short accounts sometimes are the way to the truth, the better way to the truth. I say in parentheses, parents ought to know this. Have you ever had a child who you knew did something wrong and you called them on the carpet and you said, I want you to explain this. And they start with this long story. The longer it gets, folks, the less responsibility they have. Is that not right? You know, and if you get the short version of it, if you really cut it down to its bare essentials, yes, I did this. So you're basically saying to them, cut all that stuff, give me the short version. That's really what happens in a trial. Now, most of us, when we see trials on television, you know, the witness says in effect, but your honor, if I could only say this other stuff, you'd understand. And, and the point is, no, answer the question, yes or no. Simplicity may be the better pointer to the truth, as I think it, it may be in our text. So our task as we come to this is to ask ourselves, in this short, concise account, what is the message that uh, Mark is trying to get across? And then, what does that have to do with those readers? What does it have to do with us by way of application? And you have basically three main sections in the, in the New American Standard. They double dark verse 21 and make it a, a separate short paragraph. So there's four paragraphs. But in reality, it's still a part of the, uh, the, the reaction of the soldiers who force Simon to take up the cross of the Lord Jesus. So the three major sections are verses 1 through 5, Pilate's amazement at Jesus' silence. Verses 6 through 15, which is Barabbas or Jesus. The contrast played out between those two. And finally, the soldiers dealing with the Lord Jesus and the abuse that they put him to as they beat him and mock him in false evidence of worship. All right. Here's some background, and, and, and this, this, by the way, uh, is a reflective of my prejudice, I guess you would say, or preference in terms of information. If you read some of the commentators, they've got all kinds of background stuff about Pilate and all kinds of stuff. Uh, you know what? It's not in the Bible. I know it may be enlightening in some way, but it doesn't pull my chain. So let me give you some stuff from the Bible that ought to give us some sense of background for our trial that's going on. I'm going to take those texts that in your notes, uh, are, I'm going to do those in reverse order. I've changed my mind, as I often do. And I want to go to Acts chapter 24, verses 2 through 9, because this is an, a, a, an indication of the way in which Jewish uh, religious leaders bring accusations against Christ and Christians. So here's Tertullus, who's been brought in in this trial of Paul. Listen to what he says uh, about Paul. He, he, first of all, flatters Felix, and, and then he says uh, in verse uh, 5, For we have found this man to be a real pest, there's that kind of vagueness again. You know, that's true. That's a criminal offense. You're guilty of pesthood. Five years, you know, for that. Sure. And, and so he says, he stirs up dissension among all the Jews. In, in other words, he's a revolutionary, right? Just like Jesus was accused to be, so on. And, and uh, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. The temple always comes in. 
in, in, in the accusations against Jesus, the accusations against Stephen, the accusations against Paul, temple, because the temple is a huge thing. And it's one of the critical elements, I think, in the turning of the crowd against Jesus is this whole business of Jesus and the, the temple. So there are the kinds of charges you can expect. Vague, nebulous, troublemaker, temple, temporal, temple destroyer, and, and we'd just be best off without him. Uh, Rome would certainly do better without him. Now, go back to uh, chapter 23. Verses 26 through 31. Here you have Paul, uh, and, and he's being uh, brought to trial before a Roman official. But remember, the Jews have orchestrated a scenario where what they want is for Paul to be brought back to Jerusalem to stand trial, but they're going to kill him. They've got a group of guys committed to kill him on the way back. Paul's nephew overhears the plot and goes to the, to the Roman official and tells him that. So now Paul is being sent off under armed Roman protection to go to Caesarea to stand a trial there. And this is what uh, Claudius Lysias writes to Felix to explain here's why Paul is there. Verse 26. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came upon them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Now, he's kind of torquing the facts, classic politician. But anyway, it's sort of true. And, and I wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. Is this sounding familiar? You know, and then he says, uh, and, and so I, I sent him uh, to you to discern all this, but he gets Roman protection from Jewish authorities because their charges don't stick. Now go back uh, with me to Acts chapter 18 in one of my favorite texts. Because here it, it, it's Paul who's under uh, attack and uh, in Corinth. And you remember he's been, he's been preaching there. And the Lord gives him a vision and says, don't, don't worry, Paul. I'm going to take care of you. There's lots of people here yet to be saved through your ministry. And then this kind of riot takes place. And he's drugged before Gallio, and he is accused, again, of, of being a kind of a revolutionary troublemaker uh, who is violating Jewish law. And so it, 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 it goes this way. Verse 13. This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, one could read that contrary to our law, Jewish law. But what I think they're saying here is, Roman law protects Jews. They're disowning Paul as a Jew and they're saying he does not deserve protection as a Jew. And therefore, he is not under the protection of Roman law. Now, this is huge, folks, because the whole book of Acts would be a different story if Paul did not have Roman protection. You understand the way in which Rome facilitated the preaching of the gospel at the hand of Paul or at the mouth of Paul. And, and so uh, here's their, their accusation. Paul is about to open his mouth in defense. He doesn't get the first word out. And look at what Gallio says to the Jews. If it were a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, O oh Jews... It would be reasonable for me to put up with you. Obviously, he's not really predisposed to hear their case, is he? They don't have a lot of leverage with him. And then he says, but if there are questions about words and names and your own law, then you take care of it for your, after, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of such matters. And then he not only says case closed, he drives them out. And then it says that Sosthenes gets beat up. 
And Gallio looks on and he could care less. Now, the reason that I mention all of this is I'm convinced that Pilate is not all that different. In other words, if you just transport a little bit of the Roman attitude toward Jewish troublemakers, and I'm not talking about Paul, I'm talking about religious leaders who keep trying to brand Christians as criminals, if you transpose just a little bit of that into our text, then you would see Pilate saying to himself, Oh, good night. And, and in my mind, he is not predisposed to find in favor of the prosecution. I think he's predisposed to find in favor of Jesus. Okay, so that back in your mind. Now, about Barabbas. Our text puts him as, as being imprisoned with others who are guilty of insurrection and, 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 and murder. And I, I'm inclined to read that as his disciples. So Jesus, by the way, his name is sometimes called Jesus Barabbas. So you got Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Messiah. And, and so here's, uh, Jesus Barabbas with his rabble raising, rousing, uh, disciples. But when you come to Luke 23 verse 19, it says he is a revolutionary who is a murderer, not who was. Some, by the way, translate revolutionary as robber. He's a robber and a murderer. But you have to say, this is one bad dude. And frankly, when you see the other guys on the other side of the Lord Jesus, they are guilty of, they're thieves, right? Robbery, not murder. Who do you think might have been scheduled for the center cross? In my mind, it would be Barabbas. Here is a, is, is, is a, a traitor, a murderer, a terrorist. One bad dude. And notice that he's guilty and more of all of the charges that are leveled against Jesus. He really is a revolutionary. And he really is a troublemaker and Rome really would be better without him. And Rome has already judged that to be true. So now what you have is Jesus is going to take Barabbas's place. Barabbas is going to take Jesus' place. It's, it's, it's mind bending to read this account. And then as I say, as I said before, the Jews have done a beautiful job of offending Pilate. A, waking him up very early in the morning. It's clear that there are so many things that have to happen. It's morning, but friends, it's not 9 o'clock morning. It's early morning. Beating up this guy's door. Remember what Proverbs says about the guy that speaks with a loud verse? That is not the way to win friends and influence people. And then to say, look, we got a guy for you to condemn. Don't bother with the charges. But we're not coming into your filthy house to be defiled. Oh, this is really good. These guys are really doing it. And then they try to put the squeeze on him. These guys have offended Pilate. They are not, I don't think he is predisposed. Last point on that, on that frame. Pilate knew what was going on and why. You notice it isn't just Mark that says, but when, when, when Pilate says to them, so would you like for me to release for you the king of the Jews? In, in some translations, it's, it's a parenthesis. But it says to us, because Pilate knew that they were delivering Jesus up out of envy. Do you think Pilate was so dull that he did not understand what was going on with Jesus? Hey, look, this guy may be nasty, but he's not stupid. He understands. These guys hate Jesus. And so he understands the circumstances that are going on. And because of that, I think he's predisposed to dismiss it. And in fact, to dismiss it in such a way that's a kick in the britches to the people bringing the charges. King of the Jews, next frame. 
That expression, other than Matthew 2.2, Magi coming, we would come and see him who is the king of the Jews, never used in any of the Gospels until the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And in every Gospel, that expression is used. Keep in mind that when we come to our next message, the crucifixion of Jesus, there's a sign. Is there not? It says... The king of the Jews. And remember, one of the texts says, they argue, I think it's John, where they say to Pilate, don't say king of the Jews, say he claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate says, translated, paraphrased, in your face. No, what I've written, I've written. Because that really is the crux of of what's going on in this particular trial. So in Matthew, you have three times, Mark 5, Luke 3, and John 6. It's found four times in our text once more, uh, but four times in our particular text. And it, I believe, is the central issue. Now, this is really important to get under your belt because in Mark's brevity, he talks about uh, their meeting early in the morning, forming a plan... And, and then they come before Pilate, and Pilate says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, folks, something has gone before that. For that question to be raised, accusation has to be made. So, when you look at Luke 23, verses 1 through 3, listen to what it says. Then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We find this man misleading our nation forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And the inference is very clear, is it not? He is anti-Rome. When he claims to be a king, then he is proclaiming himself to be opposed to Caesar. And therefore, he's a revolutionary. Uh, When you come to... uh, John chapter 19 and verse 12, it reads this way. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar because everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, that, my friend, I believe is on the table before, in effect, has, has taken place before our text uh, uh, and Jesus uh, standing before Pilate so that when Pilate says to him, Are you then the king of Israel? He's really saying, are these accusations true? Now, when you think about this and the genius, the evil genius of of the Jewish opponents of Jesus, think about Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, the Son of God, all of which are true. But if they were false, they would be punishable by death under Jewish law. They can't do that. So they find Jesus guilty of of offense against their law, blasphemy. Now they have to turn that case around. No wonder they've got a conference going on in a back room somewhere. Okay, now we're standing before Pilate. How do we convince him? He doesn't care whether Jesus blasphemes or not. So we've got to turn this into some kind of crime against Rome. So Jesus claimed to be Messiah is a claim to be king. In fact, Matthew's gospel presents the triumphal entry and, and, and quotes prophecy as, Behold your king. So Jesus did claim to be a king, but a different kind of king than, than what Pilate or others would have said, and certainly a different kind of king than what the Jewish religious leaders were implying. So they've gone through this genius of somehow now making him out to be a rival of Rome, an insurrectionist, literally a virtual Barabbas. Let's face it. That's what they're saying. This guy is a Barabbas, and you ought to do away with him in the, in the interest of, of Rome. So there's the charge. Now we come to our text. The high priests... Meet early in the morning. Jesus has already been indicted by the Sanhedrin of blasphemy. They're content. They've 
given enough semblance of legality to their charge that they now must go to Rome because Rome has to execute, they cannot. And in the providence of God, it's Rome that crucifies, not stones. And so Jesus will be put to death as prophecy has indicated. They indicate that Jesus is the the king of the Jews, claims to be that, and that that makes him, that proves their case that he is a revolutionary. And so he's brought before Pilate, uh, bound, and Pilate asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? Interesting what the translations do with this. they, they, a lot of them say, you say so. And, and literally, that's kind of the, the terse way in which he, he answers. I don't think there's any question in Jesus' answer as to the fact that Jesus is saying, yes, I am. In fact, the NIV renders it. I don't generally go there. But he says, yes, it is as you say. I know it's a paraphrase, but that's the sense. Now, if you think back to uh, uh, Matthew uh, 26 and, and verse 25, what you see there is Judas is asking Jesus, am I the betrayer? Jesus answers him in virtually the same way. And he's not saying, well, maybe yes, maybe. <laughs> he's not saying it, folks. He's saying, you got it. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's the same way in which Jesus answers the Sanhedrin when they say, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says virtually the same thing, at least in Matthew. You say so. So I don't think there's an iffiness to the yes that Jesus has given uh, to us there. Notice then they pile accusation upon accusation. Jesus makes that one statement, that one admission, and from that point on, he says virtually nothing. A couple of responses to, to uh, Pilate, as John records, but virtually nothing in response to the accusations that have been leveled and are being almost machine gun fashioned uh, aimed at him by the, the adversaries. When Pilate says to Jesus, don't you hear all these accusations? Why in the world aren't you saying something? In my reading of that, I think that Pilate is saying something that I don't think I've ever heard of a judge saying before, or at least not very often. Judges hear a lot of things, and, and basically they hear excuses and denials. Wouldn't that be true? And some of the denials and excuses are actually valid, innocent people. But, but judges hear, I didn't do it, and here's why. Or, I'm, I shouldn't be punished, and here's why. I take Pilate to be saying, look man, I'm on your side. Don't you hear these stupid allegations that are being made? All you have to do is give me just a little rope. I'll hang these guys. And is it not true that Jesus could have done that? I mean, look at the way he's disrobed these guys in the great debate when they're trying to trap him. Jesus could have taken them apart. And I think that's a, that says a lot about silence, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. But... It seems to me that Pilate's amazement is, here is an innocent man. I can spring him. I know I can. And so he's saying to Jesus, come on, give me a little help here. And Jesus doesn't answer. He goes away shaking his head saying, I've never seen anything like this. And I'm sure that is true. So that's the first section of our text. Pilate is amazed. Amazed at Jesus' silence in this barrage of accusations which are all false. So in uh, verses 6 through 15, we have this Jesus Barabbas versus Jesus Messiah thing going on. So he first of all introduces to us, here's this annual event. And the annual event, as Mark describes it, is the crowd gets to ask for anyone they want and Pilate has to release him as a, a part of the celebration, whatever it is. You know, that's the, that's the name of the game. So here is this uh, annual prisoner release uh, coming along, and then they introduce Barabbas. 
the one who, as we've seen in other places, and it's certainly alluded to here in Mark, is one bad dude. So you got prisoner release, Barabbas. Wouldn't you say that it wouldn't be Barabbas who'd be on the top of the list to be released? Now think about this. And this is really, I think, critical to our understanding of what takes place here. It is contrary to Pilate's interests. And it is contrary to Rome's interest to release Barabbas. If Jesus goes free, he's not starting a revolution. If Barabbas goes free, he is, if he can do it. That's what he was convicted of. And if he goes free and is given to a crowd who's crying for his release, who's going to support him? The crowds. So it's an amazing thing to me that Pilate could listen to this and say to himself, oh yeah, right, yeah, take him. I'll let Barabbas go, this innocent guy never caused trouble in his life of a, of a criminal nature. Yeah. Amazing to me. So Pilate says, shall I release then the king of the Jews? They want Barabbas. That's their initiative, no doubt prompted by the leaders. Shall I release the king of the Jews to you? See, they haven't named who they want yet. He knows this is a setup. And so in a sense, he's like a cat playing with a mouse. And he thinks, I'm going to make these guys sweat. Just like the other, the other later guys in the book of Acts. I'll make these guys sweat a little bit. So you'd like me to release Jesus, the king of the Jews, right? Oh, no, 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 not that. And, and that's where you see this whole turnaround and they say, no, crucify Jesus. We want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Pilate then declares him to be innocent, innocent. And they insist, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So Pilate has Jesus flogged, and, and that's, a process and a product we probably don't even want to think about. Some guys don't remain conscious through that. It's not just whips. It, it's, it's pieces of metal or stone on the end of the whips, and they literally tear people's flesh and body open. It may well be from other texts that he did that, hoping that there would be such pity for Jesus at that point that they would say, enough. But that, of course, does not happen. So it seems to me that while Pilate is amazed in verses 1 through 5, it's Pilate's actions that are amazing in verses 6 through 15. How in the world would a, a, a ruler, a governor, ever release a terrorist to be joined with supporters when, when their purpose was to overthrow Rome? And they've already murdered to try and achieve that. That, to me, is the amazing thing that takes place uh, with Pilate. And given the fact that I believe he was predisposed, at least initially, to let Jesus go. That he's not in favor, necessarily, of the opposition. Now you've got Jesus and the Roman soldiers uh, in uh, the last verses, 16 through 21. Notice this. Jesus is taken into the palace <laughs> where none of the Jews would go because it was defiling. I just find that kind of interesting. Our sinless Savior goes in to this place that no Jew, self-respecting Jew, would go at this point in time. And uh, the whole cohort is gathered. Now, I got to thinking about that, because when you go back to one of the parallel accounts, I think it's John, where it says the, that, that, uh, that Judas arranged for the cohort or battalion of Roman soldiers to accompany him. If the whole cohort has now been assembled here and they're going to beat Jesus, I'm inclined to say it's the same cohort that was assembled to arrest Jesus. Now follow me on this. This cohort was the group that when Jesus said, I am, fell on their backsides. I mean, these are Roman soldiers, folks. You've got to have a little dignity, right? And they lost theirs. And they lost their dignity so much that when Jesus said, well, if you're after me, then let these go, they did. 
So not only they are humiliated by falling down before Jesus, they're humiliated by losing the disciples they were supposed to arrest. So as I see them gathered there in the praetorium, that whole cohort, I think they're saying to themselves, Jesus is going to pay. He made me look bad. It's now his turn to look bad. So you get this whole Roman cohort now mocking Jesus, dressing him up like a king, beating him brutally. And by the way, in exactly the same way it was described that the Sanhedrin leaders in the temple police beat him. Same thing. Almost the same words. So Jesus then is released to be crucified. Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander and Rufus, is uh, forced to carry Jesus' cross. Now, I'll just make this quick comment. John 19, 17, it says Jesus carried his own cross. I don't think there's any contradiction. I think Jesus carried his cross as far as physically one could do. I think it's when Jesus collapsed under that, that Simon is now required to carry that cross the rest, or at least assist for the rest of the way. And that's what Mark adds as a detail um, that Matthew and Luke don't record, and that is that he has two sons. Now, let's go over to our conclusion and application, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. One, shorter is not less. Shorter is just more focused. This account is very pointed, and its brevity underscores that fact. It doesn't diminish that fact. So the question is, what is being said to us? Well, look first of all at Simon's sons, my two sons. (laughs) No other gospel mentions this detail. We know that in the book of Romans, chapter 16, there was a Rufus who was known to all of the church. Now, obviously, there are lots of Rufuses. The theory of some is that this book was written, the gospel was written for those in Rome. But we will say, can we not say this with certainty? When Mark adds the detail, not only of this man who comes out of the country, this guy's not a city feller. This guy's a guy from out in the, uh, the boondocks. When he comes, somehow Mark not only knows him by name, he knows the names of his sons. What does that suggest to you? As this book is written to a, a group of people, many or most of whom would be believers, it seems to me that it says Mark knew who this guy was. And the reason that he knew was because he was a believer. And that he mentions the son's names because people who read what he said would say, Oh yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, him, Simon, oh yeah, yeah, and his sons, I know them. That little detail is, it looks to me like it's a diamond in the midst of a pile of mud. Because here you see, do you not, you see this whole chaotic event and all of this crud going on. And and just as a little tiny side note, Mark says, oh, by the way, yes, there was a guy who was forced to carry Jesus' cross, but this guy is a believer known to the Christian community and his sons too. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that God would orchestrate it this way? If he was already a believer, what do you suppose he would have said to Jesus? as he helped him with that cross. If he wasn't a believer already, would you not agree with me that this incident must have been such a soul-stirring event that it changed his life forever? What I'm saying is, this is part of God's sovereign design. And, And so what I see in all this is, here's this huge picture of these trials and all these things going on and Jesus being condemned and crucified. Here's this one snapshot of Simon and his family. And it's just as though God's saying, I am in charge of every detail of what's taking place. This is no accident. It's God 
who's in control. Uh, I'll mention two key texts for the interpretation of, of our text. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6. And actually, uh, the uh, verse 13 is the key, but you really need to look at the broader context because it's talking about them being faithful witnesses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. (laughs) The good confession, word-wise, was, you said that I am. The good confession has to be the entirety of Jesus' response and demeanor, does it not? Jesus was the faithful witness. Now, when you link that to 1 Peter chapter 2, and you see Peter talking to slaves and talking about suffering righteously when they are innocently accused, then when you see Peter talking about that, he uses Jesus as the example and I must confess, I've always thought of that in, in, in some different ways, and I'll come to that in a minute. The guilt of Jesus is now, uh, for Jesus' death is now universal. The guilt for Jesus' death is now universal. I mean, think about it. His disciples have fled. Peter's denied him. Judas has betrayed him. The religious officials have falsely accused him of being and convicted him of being worthy of death. The Jewish crowds, who I believe hailed him at the triumphal entry. Barclay has another reading, and I think, I think he's way off. He says it's a different crowd. No, it isn't a different crowd. That's the point. It's the same crowd. And something has turned them on their ears. And the answer is, in short... Jesus Barabbas is more their kind of Messiah than Jesus the Christ. It's that simple. Barabbas is the man they want. They want a a rabble-rouser. They want a revolutionary. They want a man who's not afraid to shed blood. Jesus now, in his passive uh, role as the sacrificial lamb, doesn't fit that model. They don't want anything to do with it. Now, think about that. There's nobody left, is there? There's nobody left. Everybody. Not only do you have the Sanhedrin and the temple police who beat on Jesus, now you have Pilate, Herod, the crowd, and the Roman soldiers. So my question is, who's left? Who's left to reject Jesus? Nobody. And I, I, I uh, wrote down, I, I was thinking about this in, in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it took Paul three chapters to reach that conclusion. And his point in all of that is the pagans out in the, in the heart of Africa, they have a revelation of God in nature they've rejected. They're worthy of divine condemnation. The Jews have a great revelation of of the Lord in the law, and they've rejected that. They're guilty. Then he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Isn't that what this text is saying to us? Nobody is left who's innocent but Jesus. He is innocent. All are guilty. Now, I think that Matthew probably makes more of a point of the innocence of Jesus than Mark does. But how can one read the account of Mark and come away saying, he's guilty. I know it. He's guilty. You read the text and you say, no, he isn't. Even Pilate knew he was innocent. Pilate's wife. You know, everybody comes away convinced that Jesus is innocent. He's convicted and executed, not because he's guilty, because He's innocent. Isn't it fascinating that the emphasis on Jesus' innocence comes just before his sacrificial death? Under the law, the lamb that was to be slain had to be without blemish, sinless, in a sense, symbolically, right? When we celebrate the Lord's table, we start with the bread and we move to the wine. 
The bread symbolizes the sinless perfection of the one whose blood is shed. If that sinless perfection is not there, then the shedding of blood is worthless. This text is setting forth for us the innocence of Jesus because it is the only way that his atoning death will have value and merit for us. The silence of Jesus and its implications. What a time for Jesus to speak. But when I, when I read this, and I, by the way, in, in, back in seminary days, they had what they called the senior sermon, and I preached one of them, and I preached on 1 Peter chapter 2. I always thought that when Peter was talking about Jesus' silence, that he was talking about Jesus not, and there is an element of that, when he's reviled, he doesn't revile back and whatever, that Jesus doesn't use bad words, <laughs> you know, naughty words like a lot of people would do in that setting. Uh, in that, but That's part of his silence. But the other part of his silence is not speaking to his defense because it is his task to die. And the way I look at it, folks, it is not Pilate who's in charge. Would you agree with me? It is not Pilate who's in charge. It is not the Jewish religious leaders. It is not the soldiers. They're all losing it over this thing. Jesus is in charge, and the way that he shows it is by his silence. And his silence leads him to the cross for which he was destined. So when Jesus says to the Father in the garden, Not my will, but yours be done. He pursues that path by being silent. And that silence shows his innocence and their guilt. Well, that's just huge. Finally, it shows Jesus' sovereign control. Who's in charge here? Jesus, as always. He's in charge. This is his doing. This is his following the will of the Father. This is his sacrificial death for guilty sinners like them and like us. That's the gospel, my friend. That's the gospel. You come to this, some were testifying, Greg and others, that part of the salvation process was coming to realize what a rat we are before God. How unrighteous we are in his sight. That's all of us, friends. We got to get on that side that says we're one of them. We're one of them. And if we were there, we would have been one of them. But Jesus persisted through his silence and all that he did to go to that cross to die for people who were as worthless as we are for the glory of God and to fulfill his purposes. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus, my friend, you need to see your guilt his innocence, and the sacrifice that he made for you as the sinless Son of God, the only means by which you and I can be saved. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. Thank you here for his silence. Thank you too, through, uh, also for uh, Simon. What an amazing thing in the midst of all of this that a man comes through this who it would seem became a believer in you. What a marvelous thing. In a way, he is a picture of all of those who have come to faith. Not his doing, but yours. May we worship the Lord Jesus and exalt him as our beautiful Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.